This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinary at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today on the show, we'll welcome Dr. Doug Clark, retired fisheries biologist with the Army Corps of Engineers. On today's show, we'll talk about the bizarre yet beautiful dragonflies and damselflies. Dr. Clark is gearing up for a lecture about these insects at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, so he invited him in to share his knowledge with you. Where do you find dragonflies and what's their life cycle? Uh, and we'll also offer some tips on photographing and studying them. And if you have a pet question, Dr. Major's here, ready to help out. Join the conversation this morning with a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can email the show. It's animals at mpbonline.org. Always like to remind you that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday mornings, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning. Hope everyone is doing well this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so, Galata got a lot of have a lot to get to this first part of the show. Uh, Libby, uh, you have some events that you want to talk about, and then we have Nicole Smith from the museum because they're awfully busy, and she wanted to come in and tell about things going on as well. So, we'll start with Libby. Yeah, I've got some get outdoors events. The uh, Mississippi Coastal Audubon Janet uh, sent us a couple of things. Uh, this coming Saturday, they're having a field trip on the Gulfport beaches, and uh, they'll start at uh, Moses Pier. The website is org to get more information so that you can get involved in that if you want to. And LaFleur's Bluff here in Jackson, uh, Audubon bird watching trip at 8 o'clock. Just uh, go through the, the gates of the park and... Yeah, I think it'll be obvious. You'll find everybody. <laughs> and then I think Nicole's got all the rest of the events. Right. So uh, after your lovely bird walk in the park, you might want to hike on over to the Natural Science Museum. We have a new traveling exhibit called Ocean Bound, and it's lots of fun. It's about watersheds. There's even a yellow submarine that the kids can kind of climb through. And you might have the Beatles tune playing in your head when you're in there, but it's a good thing. Um, also, if you're thinking, okay, I'm enjoying this day, I'm here with my children, I would like to do something grown up later. Remember that Saturday is the last day to call the museum and register for the Dinner and a Dive event. Dinner and a Dive is sort of kind of our Valentine celebration. We're doing it on February the 9th. And the menu is provided by Saltine. This is a four-course meal, very grown-up. There's live music by Richard Smith that's going to be there. And there will be a guided dive program with museum staff that will be there. So it's going to be a lot of fun, and it's just going to be for those folks that night. Uh, the event is on February 9th, 6 to 8.30 p.m. It is 75 per person, but you absolutely get what you pay for. You can go to our website and see the menu that Saltine has uh, produced. It makes my mouth water just reading it. Uh, everything from uh, shrimp and grits to marinated steak. So it all just looks so very good. So please call by February 9th to make your reservations because we need, we need some people. We want to have fun. 
I think I was the second one to call. <laughs> you were, yeah. And uh, and it's it's going to be, I'm so excited about this. It's in front of the aquariums. You're going to be sit, seated in front of the aquariums. The the dive, of course, also aqua-themed. And then Saltine, a, a water-based restaurant. I mean, it's just a nice little synergy. And then the ocean-bound exhibit there. It's going to be very nice. And the folks that are call, calling are often doing this as their Valentine celebration. But I've had, you know, a few folks come in in small groups. You know, like there's a little small garden club that's coming, which I'm excited about. And, and a few individuals, you know, that are coming to, to make new friends for this. So it's kind of a lovely thing, a different sort of... Um, approach to the holiday all right uh remind folks if they want to find out about the museum and some of the things going on ways to get in touch excellent so uh, we have a great facebook page it is updated regularly so if you look up mississippi museum of natural science on facebook that's going to pop up also uh through the mdwfp website mississippi department of wildlife fisheries and parks website the museum is part of them and if you look there, you'll see all of our calendar of events, all the things that we're up to. And you can always just call us at 601-576-6000. We love what we do. We're passionate about it. And we're happy to talk to you about it. So call us anytime. All right. Very good. And as I mentioned, the top of the show, our guest today, Dr. Doug Clark, is going to have a lecture at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science about dragonflies and damselflies. We want to mention several times during the hour when that is to let you know. Uh, it's their Tuesday noon luncheon, or I'm sorry, lecture. Uh, and so it'll be February 5th at noon at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. And again, we'll mention that a couple times uh, before the hour is through. So the Super Bowl is this Sunday, and for the past 15 years, the Super Bowl Sunday also brings the Puppy Bowl. Uh, in their 15-year history, every puppy that's played in the Puppy Bowl has been adopted. But when we talk about adopting uh, pets, Dr. Major, it kind of... Um, maybe a tangent to that is the idea of making sure that when you get a pet, uh, they are spayed or neutered to make sure that there are not a lot of unwanted or uh, unclaimed puppies out there or kittens. Certainly. Uh, in fact, I can't think of a adoption agency, if you will, that does not require the pets to be uh, spayed or neutered. Uh, either if they're too young when they're adopted, they, they will have uh, part of the adoption fee will go toward spaying and neutered so neutering so it's it's a good thing and of course with adoption it's a good time uh obviously uh to adopt a pet always i kind of shy away from christmas and all that simply because there's too much impulse maybe stuff going on there but uh there are always plenty of pets to be adopted both young and old and uh do some research and visit and maybe the first time you go to see a the pets, maybe nothing uh, really clicks, but quite often there's that eye contact and you know that this is the pet that you need to adopt. So uh, it's very, very important. I will mention that we're getting into February now, uh, another day, and February is Pet Dental Month. Mm -hmm. and it's something we need to talk about because a large percentage of uh, dogs and cats have some dental issues. So that will be something we'll be talking about more uh, in February. All right, so we talk about spaying and neutering uh, for puppies and kittens. Is the timeline about the same? And if so, when when should you consider having that done? Well, there's some controversy, and I'm kind of in the middle of it because uh, a lot of the adoption groups want to have them spayed at 11, 12 weeks of age. And that's really a little bit early from my standpoint. I know why they're doing it, because they don't want to have a problem 
later on, like somebody adopts a pet and fails to bring it back in and have it spayed or neutered. But uh, in most cases, I like to have some, what shall I say, secondary sexual characteristics begin to develop. Uh, And I think uh, if you're talking about cats, I go more by weight. Uh, Certainly a four-pound cat probably is about the right size, which would put them at about three or four months. Uh, And same thing could be true of puppies. Uh, We have to take special care of uh, the smaller breeds, such as Chihuahua, Yorkies. Uh, You don't want to be spaying a two-and-a-half-pound, three-pound puppy. Uh, And that's the issue that I have with it. I think they need to get a little bit more development uh, prior to spaying and neutering the sum. Uh, I certainly believe or advocate uh, most uh, dogs will come in season somewhere in the six- to eight-month range, so I advocate definitely spaying or neutering prior to that time. And uh, is it something that you need to leave your pet overnight at a clinic, or is it a in-and-out kind of thing? Good question. Uh, there are clinics that send pets home the same day, we, uh, unless special request, we keep them overnight. Uh, they're both uh, have pain medication and sedation. And the idea there is that if a pet goes home and you happen to slip up and the pet uh, decides to go load up on water or food, if you don't, if you're not careful, uh, you can have some uh, vomiting, uh, diarrhea, this sort of thing. So, in my opinion, it's better to keep them overnight uh, again. Uh, have some concern with sending a lot of them home the same day. All right. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, dragon and damselflies today with our guest, Dr. Doug Clark, also Dr. Major here, ready to answer some pet questions. Our phone lines are open at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can email the show as well, animals at mpbonline.org. Before we go to our first break, we do have an email here. It comes from a listener in Pricedale, Mississippi, who says, Love the show. We had a sad discovery on our farm a couple of days ago. I found our sharp-shinned hawk friend dead in the grass beside a fence. He or she was one beautiful specimen, 12 inches from stem to stern. I suspect the hawk hit a fence while hunting for a tasty little bird. I believe I misidentified this bird a few years ago as a kestrel, although the kestrel may still be around. We also have a huge Cooper's hawk, which uh, has that similar horizontal banding under the tail. The sharp-shinned tail is square. The Cooper's tail is rounded. Uh, this brings up a, a thing. If uh, if you live out in the country or if you live in an area where you might find it, what what should you do if you come across a, a dead animal like this? Any thoughts on that? If you are close to a museum, such as the Museum of Natural Science, um, often that, that animal might have valuable information, and so we do ask for people to bring, put it, you can double bag it in plastic and put it in your freezer and then find a place that might need it for something. Okay. Um, and Dr. Major, I guess if you have pets, that's obviously something you don't want your pet uh, around. You know, uh, it's one of those things that probably would be wise not to for several reasons. A lot of the uh, birds will have some uh, mites, uh, this sort of thing. So you, not that they would become, uh, what shall I say, uh, on your animal and stay on there, but they might cause some irritation both to you and the pet, so I would consider that you don't want those in your house. Put them in the freezer, just like Libby said, double bag, either Ziploc or larger bag, and that would kill any uh, type of parasite, uh, depending on how long it stayed in the freezer. 
All right, very good. We do uh, have time now for our first break. When we get back, we'll begin our discussion about dragonflies with our guest, Dr. Doug Clark. Also, if you have a question about uh, about your pet or your brush with wildlife you'd like to share with us, give us a call. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464 or email the show animals at mpbonline.org During the break, we'll test your dragonfly knowledge. True or false, according to the Smithsonian, the title for the fastest flying insect belongs to the dragonfly, which darts and spins and dives at a record 35 miles an hour. We'll have that answer after the break, so stay tuned. MPBonline.org is the destination for everything Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Catch up on past shows from Think Radio, check out MPB TV or Music Radio, and become a sustaining member all from one place. Get connected now at MPBonline.org. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. And today in studio, our guest is Dr. Doug Clark, and we're here to talk about dragonflies. You can join the conversation with a question or comment. Just give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 or send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Doug, thanks for joining us this morning. If you would, tell us a little bit about your background. Sure, um, and I'm thrilled to be here, number one. But um, my background, uh, I spent a career, I'm now retired uh, as a biologist. Um, uh, my formal training was in marine science, um, and I spent over 30 years with the environmental lab at the uh, Engineer Research and Development Center in Vicksburg, where I still live. Um, so it's kind of a little bit odd because my training, my formal training was in marine science, and there were very few insects at all uh, in, in, in that in particular environment. My, my interest in dragonflies and dantheflies uh, is something that struck me very late in life. I'm, I've been retired. I picked up a camera to take up uh, wildlife photography as a hobby, following my wife around, who's an avid birder and started taking pictures of birds first, and then butterflies, and then finally dragonflies and damselflies. And I was so taken by them that uh, fascination is, is not an exaggerated word when it, when it comes to this. They're just amazing creatures. Um, they have so many uh, amazing capabilities and behaviors, um, colors, and so forth. So I was, I've been totally taken by them for the last couple of years. Um, I'd give a, a, a shout-out to... Uh, uh, the Mississippi Wildlife Photographers uh, group on Facebook. Um, what happened was a couple of years ago, I think I was one of the first ones to start putting pictures of dragonflies and damselflies on there. And before I knew it, people were calling and saying, Doug, what's this one? <laughs> so um, I equipped myself with a, with a field guide or two and uh, plunged into it. And so now I, f- I find myself just a couple of years later sitting here. Uh, before the break, we asked the question. It was a true or false question. According to the Smithsonian, the fastest flying insect is the dragonfly, darting and spinning and diving at a record 35 miles an hour. That is a true statement. And I guess if you've ever seen one, that's not uh, too hard to believe. <laughs> um, and it's uh, the hummingbird moth, the, the second fastest insect, being clocked at 33.7 miles an hour. So uh, talk a little bit about uh, dragonfly and damselfly. I think most people have heard the word dragonfly. Uh, Damselfly, I'm guessing, is the female? No. No. Okay. So, I so, knew I shouldn't have guessed. Go no, ahead. There, there are two suborders. Okay. Um, 
uh, odonates, which are the, the taxonomic term that covers both damselflies and dragonflies. Um, they're separated uh, by several um, anatomical differences. They have the same body plan. But um, damselflies are much, much smaller. Um, they're, 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 uh, uh, anatomical arrangement is a little bit different. Um, for example, their eyes are on protuberances that stick laterally uh, outside you know, from the head. It gives them sort of the appearance of a, of a hammerhead shark, is what most people describe them to. Um, whereas um, dragonflies are much more robust. They're larger. Um, and their their eyes um, are again am amazing features, which they're almost like a helmet that wraps around the head, and gives them almost a, a complete 360 degree vision of, of their of the field where they're looking for mates and and prey and so forth. Um, the difference, other than size, is uh, the way they're they're taxonomically grouped. Um, damselflies uh, fall into the suborder. Um, Zygoptera, which the Greek roots break down to equal wings. So uh, all of the modern odonates have four wings, two forewings, two, four wings, two hind wings. In the damselflies, if, if you looked at their profile, they're almost exactly the same for all four wings. Whereas uh, dragonflies, which fall into the suborder Anisoptera, have different shaped wings. So the fore wings are, are shaped differently than, the, than the, the hind wings, and that relates to their ability to fly so well. And a real quick difference real quick. is that when a dragonfly is resting, he's still got his wings yes. out, like yes. he's ready to go. Yes. And the damselfly, she's got hers closed. At least so most, it's kind of a real do. quick, most do, do not all damselflies close their wings when they rest? No, there are spread wing um, versions as well. Okay. So. Um, is is one more common than the other here in Mississippi? Um, so yeah, we can start there. Um, uh, dragonflies and damselflies um, worldwide, there are estimates of say between five thousand and seven thousand species. Most are tropical. Um, we're in sort of the temperate range. In North America, there are uh, roughly four hundred and sixty. Um, damselflies and dragonfly species. And of those in Mississippi, we've got about 150, of which 50 are damselflies, give or take one, and 100 are dragonflies. So in the insect world, that's not very diverse. I mean, uh, if you were talking about beetles, there are several hundred thousand species of beetles around the world. But, but that said, the diversity is just amazing um, uh, when you get into... Uh, the, the fact that uh, the, the, the females look very different than the males in some species and the juveniles do as well. So um, there's quite, a, quite a, uh, an array to get very deeply involved in in Mississippi. Um, you know, one of the fun things I like about uh, creatures is that uh, they get a lot of colloquial names or informal names or whatever. So uh, if you would, maybe share a couple for dragonflies and if you know where those names came from. Oh, yeah. So... Um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting that there are cultural differences in the perceptions about uh, dragonflies around the world. So um, in Mississippi, I think some of the common colloquial names are things like snake doctors <laughs> and, and um, uh, devil's needles. And it all, it, there, there are histories to all of those names. Um, in in uh, Eastern cultures, um, Japan, China, uh, in that area, 
dragonflies have this perception of being very beneficial, associated with um, good things, um, uh, good weather, uh, good things that are happening. Uh, uh, samurai warriors uh, had, had dragonflies as their symbols of strength and valor and victory. Western cultures uh, are quite different. So our terminology for dragonflies and these colloquial names largely stem from, from Germanic and Slavic uh, origins. And they all have somewhat of a dark overtone to them. So this is where the devil's needles and darn, devil's darning needles come in. And um, some of the interesting stories for the origin of those uh, in Europe... Um, when a child would be unruly or so forth, the parent would, this in the medieval times, would threaten to have their lips sewn together by, by dragonfly flying needles. So <laughs> there's that dark overtone there. Fortunately, I don't think we have that uh, in Mississippi, but snake doctors is still a very common um, colloquial term to describe them. But you know, for about the last 30 years, Dragonflies have been a common theme in jewelry yes. and fabrics yes. and clothing. Pottery. So I think that opinion is changing now. It yeah, is. I think it now is. that I, I don't think that most Americans have any negativity at all towards dragonflies, but those strange things remain in their names. Now that we have the ability to look closely at them through binoculars or cameras and actually see their beautiful color patterns and so forth, I think that those perceptions are dying out, dark ones. Yeah. So, Dr. Major, if I remember correctly, you were a bit of an insect uh, collector at one time. Uh, did you ever have any dragonflies in your collection? Oh, yes. There's some pretty, pretty neat ones. Uh, and some damselflies as well. Uh, they, you know, I was thinking about where the dragonfly came from. You know, the Eastern culture, the dragons are not necessarily bad. Right. Uh, they are revered and honored, whereas in Western culture or the Germanic, uh, it's more of a, uh, as you say, a dark uh, connotation. So that's interesting. But, yeah, you know, dragonflies, uh, they're, they're fairly fragile when you collect them. You have to be careful. Uh, I should have brought a box today. I've got got some. And the amazing thing about insects, uh, of course, I'm sure you've probably heard of uh, Elizabethan and whatever collections that are still intact and still preserved properly. Uh, they retain their color. They retain their vibrance and, and can be uh, quite an exhibit uh, when, when you look at them. So anyway... Yes, I did. <laughs> uh, we're visiting today with Dr. Doug Clark talking about dragonflies. He will have a lecture at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science on Tuesday, February 5th at noon about dragonflies. So we're getting a little bit of a preview of that. Uh, so, Doug, what about size? What's the size range on these insects? Oh, yeah. So um, just speaking of Mississippi um, uh, species, probably the smallest um, would be a competition between elf and skimmer which are not, not as common and, and generally found along the coast and, and hard to find. Uh, one of the most common dragonflies in Mississippi are the eastern amber wings. Um, they're pretty much everywhere. If you haven't you know, mowed your grass lately, just walk in your grass, and, and if you start to focus in on the grass, you'll, you'll start to see these little brownish amber wing uh, dragonflies going around. They're about uh, less than an inch long just under an inch long and have a wingspan of just under an inch and a half. At the other extreme, the largest 
um, dragonfly that I'm aware of in Mississippi, and there are probably some that, that, that could compete with it, would be, say, the common green darner. And that's, a, that's one you can't miss if it's out there. It's a, it's a brilliant blue-green combination, depending on male or female. And they're up to three inches long and uh, have a wingspan of almost four inches. Um, the other a interesting aspect of dragonflies in terms of size is that uh, these are small compared to uh, what we've seen in the fossil record. So uh, back 300, 250 to 300 million years ago, um, there were dragonflies that had an, a wingspan of over two feet. Wow. So, yeah, I don't know whether we'd want them around today, but, but they're pretty amazing. So uh, what do they eat? Oh, boy, yeah. So uh, in all of the life stages of dragonflies and damselflies, they're voracious predators. Um, the larval stage underwater, uh, they're one of the top predators in ponds and so forth, particularly if they're ponds that don't have fish. But um, they'll pretty much eat anything that gets in front of them that moves. Um, flying dragonflies, uh, the, the adult version, after they've emerged from, from the water, um, are tremendous predators on um, mainly smaller things than they are, but they do take um, everything from small flies um, up to butterflies. And um, again, that ties into their, their tremendous ability to fly and, and how they capture their prey. And is it true that they eat mosquitoes? So mosquitoes, yeah, that's another interesting one. We, it would be nice to say that they have this tremendous benefit of limiting uh, mosquito <laughs> populations. And certainly in the larval form, they probably do take a tremendous number of mosquito larvae in the water body. So that we like. Yeah. Right. It's a different story, I think, for adult dragonflies and damselflies that, are, that are, have emerged uh, because largely um, they're active during the middle of the day, and that doesn't coincide with the peak activities of most um, mosquitoes. They certainly do uh, prey upon them, but uh, I think it would be hard to document that they actually limit mosquito populations, at least in the adult form. All right. Uh, time for another break. When we get back, we'll continue our dragonfly conversation with our guest, Dr. Doug Clark. If you have a question about dragonflies or a pet question for Dr. Major, give us a call because our phone lines are open. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 You can email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. We'll be back with more after this, so stay tuned. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell, here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. And today in studio, we have Dr. Doug Clark, and we're talking about dragonflies and damselflies. If you'd like to join the conversation, give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 or email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Doug, uh, do dragonflies um, sting or bite? Oh, so that's usually, you know, I do the garden club circuit, and that's usually one of the first questions I get asked. And um, it, it, again, is an interesting answer. They can bite. Now, particularly the larger dragonflies. 
Um, in fact, I have a, a, a quick story of a friend who's been on this show for other topics before, uh, Mark LaSalle down on the coast. And he, he grew up as a child in, in Louisiana and told me stories of going out and capturing dragonflies just for fun, yeah, um, I which I find pretty interesting as well, because if you've ever tried to catch a dragonfly, it's, it, there's a trick to it, you know. So, but he would, he told me that um, if you captured, you know, a dragonfly by pinching it, you know, in the wrong spot, it could curl around and, 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 and take a nip out of you. Now, I've never heard of, the, of dragonflies drawing blood or intentionally attacking people. Um, the stinging part, they do not have a stinging apparatus or appendage. Um, however, the, some of the females of both uh, damselflies and dragonflies uh, do have an appendage at the end of their abdomen um, that they use. It's a blade-like structure, and they use that to make a slit, uh, generally in vegetation. Some species insert their eggs into vegetation, so they'll make a little slit and, 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 uh, and uh, inject the eggs into there for protection of the eggs. Um, and in theory, it could, you know, you could imagine um, getting tapped by the, by the, 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 the abdomen tip of a female dragonfly and actually feeling it. But um, they definitely are not dangerous in any way of uh, shape or form of being poisonous or actually going after people. All right. Uh, we've got some callers on the line. So why don't we begin by uh, saying good morning to our friend Kathleen in Osaka. You're on the air with us, Kathleen. Go ahead. Well, good morning, guys. We're all sniffling, I know. Hey. <laughs> I can't get outside to give you a recon today, but uh, I have a comment about the old uh, French words we used to use in the uh, the swamp about. We used to call them dragonflies. I don't know why, but it wasn't just uh, uh, not dragonflies, mosquito hawks. Mosquito hawks, yes. We used to call the dragonflies mosquito hawks. <laughs> I'm having a, a gray moment. I can't claim a blonde moment anymore. But uh, I was curious, when they perch on their little, like, uh, cattails and stuff like that near the water, do they eat exclusively mosquitoes, or are they apt to go after frog eggs and things like that, too? Well, if I can take that one. Um, th number one, there, there are... Uh, Particular dragonflies that, that are perchers, and uh, so they'll 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 make quick sallies from the perch to, to capture their prey, and it, which might be or uh, um, uh, mosquitoes, you know, giving giving rise to the mosquito hawk uh, colloquial name, um, and then others are uh, patrollers. They'll they'll uh, they'll be um, flying entirely and actually capturing while they're while they're patrolling. Um, and they capture uh, small prey with their mouth parts. Um, but it's also kind of neat that they, the, if you look closely at a dragonfly, uh, their legs, um, the, they have uh, six legs as all insects do, but the, the second two pairs are usually suspended below the, the dragonfly and they form a net. They have forward uh, uh, oriented spines and it forms sort of a basket and they use that to capture the larger prey. So what you're observing um, certainly could be, um, depending on the, the strategy that the, that the damselflies take, uh, predation on, on, uh, dragonfly, uh, on, uh, on mosquitoes. Uh, but again, they, they take a huge array of, of different flying insects as their main source of uh, food. All right. Uh, thanks for the call, Kathleen. Uh, let's move on. Next, we've got uh, Kinu calling in from Vicksburg. Good morning. You're on the air with us. 
Good morning. Uh, I, I have some memory in, in Japan when I'm a, I was in I was childhood. Uh, how to capture dragonfly when they are landing in the tip of the uh, leaf or something? You slowly approach it, put the finger in front of the dragonfly, make a slow circle, and they get dizzy. You can catch it. <laughs> 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 I don't know, but I, I think I succeeded. You know, like they look at the movement of the finger, and they get dizzy, and they can get it. And another uh, uh, memory is uh, uh, there are hundreds of uh, red dragonflies flying in the field in autumn, and that's a magnificent uh, yes. scene. So I just remember those to share. All right. Uh, thanks for the call. The great call there that yeah. uh, kind of confused the dragonfly and then and snag him there. That sounds like that might work. <laughs> um, let's go on next to Edgar, who's called in this morning. Uh, from Jackson. Good morning, Edgar. You're on the air with us. Good morning, and thanks for taking my call. Uh, just following up on the, on memories, when I was a kid growing up in the Mississippi Delta, we referred to dragonflies as snake doctors. And, uh, do you have any comments about the origin of that designation? Yeah, yes. Um, so, as it mentioned, um, different dragonflies have different um, habits in terms of perching or uh, hunting while they're flying and so forth. A lot of them, particularly the species called pondhawks, um, will, will perch in a horizontal position. And, um, and the males will patrol uh, territories uh, waiting for uh, females to show up and mate. Um, but while they're doing that, again, they're foraging and so forth. And um, I've actually taken a picture of a of a pond hawk sitting on the snout of a uh, 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 a cottonmouth. Wow. And um, so long as and it, and uh, recently on on the on the, the, the wildlife photography uh, Facebook group there was a picture in in the Knoxville County of a, a nice uh, uh, dragonfly sitting on the head of an alligator. So um, these these pond critters um, that so long as they're not moving quickly, um, I can I can. Imagine that uh, dragonflies lighting upon them and perching um, is a pretty common event. Um, and so I think that would easily give rise to the idea that there's a, some kind of an interaction going on between the, the dragonfly and the snake or, the, in many cases, the alligator. Well, thank you very much. All yeah. right. Thanks for the call, Edgar. We've got some open phone lines if you'd like to call in today and have a dragonfly question for our guest, Dr. Doug Clark, also Dr. Major here, ready for a pet question. And we always like to hear your brushes with wildlife as well. Call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 So, Doug, uh, Kinu mentioned uh, red dragonflies, and earlier you had mentioned sort of the diverse uh, color patterns in that. Oh, if you yeah. could talk a little bit more about some of the diversity that there is in, in the color of these creatures. Sure. So, um, in Odinates, the dra dragonflies and damselflies, um, they have several ways of um, expressing their color patterns and so forth. So, uh, it, to a certain extent, they use pigments. Um, so, uh, for the for the browns, blacks, yellows, and reds, those are those are uh, developmental um, uh, events that uh, that they they um, take on these patterns on their wings, their eyes, their their their, uh, their thorax, and their abdomen. Um, but they've also got um, colors that that emanate 
um, reflect from the, the cuticles. They have a hard exoskeleton. And uh, I kind of liken it to, say, the gorgets on, on hummingbirds, um, whereas you look at them from different angles, they reflect different colors. And so many, um, not many, but a lot of, of uh, dragonflies, in particular skimmers, um, are, have an uh, iridescence associated with them, or metallic blue or green, quite, quite attractive. Um, and that's from this, this, uh, this structural element of color. And then uh, they have a third element, which is called pruinosity. Um, they are able to um, exude a, a waxy white substance onto their uh, areas of their, their exoskeleton, and that gives it a, a whitish or a grayish, even bluish uh, tinge to it. And that can actually change as the, the dragonflies age. So some of them have more of this pruinosity um, in their older, older stages. Uh, back to the phone lines we go. We'll start this time in Ocean Springs. Pat has called in today. Good morning, Pat. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Uh, yes. Several years ago, I was walking down my street, and there was a dragonfly caught in a web, you know, like of one of the big garden spiders. Oh, yeah. A, lo a long web. And uh, I, I don't like spiders. <laughs> I don't kill them much. But anyway, I, I got a stick, and I was afraid I'd pull his wings off, so I wouldn't touch him. And I broke the web off. Somehow I didn't got him on the stick. I brought him back down the street to the lot next door to me. And I put him up in some bushes. And I just left him there. I thought maybe he could rub it, you know, rub the web off. And I went back in a few minutes, and he had uh, rubbed. He, he was gone. Well, I came on back over to my outside of my porch. And in just, uh, oh, it was about a half an hour, a dragonfly came and just hovered. About three or four feet away from me, and then left. And it was the strangest thing I ever seen in my life. So you got to thank just, you. Yeah, right. <laughs> a great story. Yeah, Pat, uh, my, da my daughter had something. Uh, I never told her about it. She lived over in Milton, Florida, and she has horses. And she was out, I think, uh, either feeding them, watering the horses, or something. But she was out a long time, and she said one just stayed with her on a post or a fence the whole time she was out. Just stayed there. All right, Pat, uh, thanks for the story. I think we're right. I think you, you got to thank you from that one dragonfly. So, Doug, uh, human interaction with dragonflies and damselflies, uh, th I guess they're, they're not much of a threat to us. No, it's mostly from an aesthetic you know, standpoint. Um, uh, I've been asked, you know, can they transmit diseases? Um, I'm not aware of any uh, strong relationships there. Uh, in certain cultures in Southeast Asia, um, dragonflies flies are consumed. Um, and I know that they, uh, they can act as an intermediate host for uh, parasites. Um, and I know that uh, they can act as an intermediate host for parasite transmission to birds. Um, but I, I really don't know of any case um, uh, where uh, they're transmitting, um, you know, diseases to humans. So we don't shouldn't eat them. Let's discourage uh, anybody from eating. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we're going to get into that no. anytime soon in Mississippi. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right, uh, time for our last break this hour. When we get back, we'll continue talking about dragonflies and damselflies with our guest, Dr. Doug Clark, who also has an upcoming lecture about these insects at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science on Tuesday, February 5th at noon. We've got a couple of calls to get to. Also, Dr. Major here, ready to take a pet question as well. So if you'd like to join the conversation, we've got some open phone lines. It's 1-877-MPB-RING. Our phone number is one 877 
672-7464. We'll be back with more, so stay tuned. No matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone, Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. And our guest today, Dr. Doug Clark. We've been talking throughout the hour about dragonflies and damselflies. Still time to work in a quick phone call if you'd like to. The number is one mpb ring It's one 672 7464 We do have some callers to get to. We'll begin again in Jackson. Jan has called in today. Good morning. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Uh, hi, Doug. Hey, hi. Jan. I, I didn't know if you knew this, but uh, Neil Douglas, uh, the ichthyologist at ULM, used to collect dragonflies by spinning a shiny silver dollar into the air. <laughs> he, he claimed that they would run into them and be stunned, and they wouldn't fall to the ground. You could just pick them up. I certainly mm. have not heard that one, Jim. <laughs> Wow, but you know what? You're taking a big chance with your silver dollar because <laughs> in most dragonfly habitat, there's a chance of that dra- silver dollar going in the water, isn't there? You know, when, when Neil Douglas was collecting them, you know, silver dollars were a lot more common. <laughs> yeah, and I guess, yeah, and they were only worth a dollar that at that time, probably. That, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks for the call, Jen. That's That's, that's kind of similar to uh, what Kinu uh, told us, sort yeah. of an idea of distracting mm-hmm. or confusing mm-hmm. the dragonfly and then kind of mm-hmm. sneaking up on them, I guess. Yeah, usually uh, you would you would think that approaching them from the rear would work best because, again, they, they have these amazing eyes, compound eyes, that, that, that can capture a visual field of almost 360 degrees, uh, except for directly behind their abdomen and down. So... Um, uh, at least in, ph- in photography, you know, they tell you, like, uh, move slowly, be very patient, and come come from behind. Although the best pictures are from the front, so <laughs> you've got a little bit of a conundrum there. Another call to get to. Gerald is on the line with us. Good morning, Gerald. You're on the air. Go ahead. Hey, uh, I, I love your show. Uh, I was walking down my driveway one day a few years ago, and I guess I had my camera with me because I didn't have a cell phone back then. And I got a great picture of a dragonfly perched on one of those driveway reflectors, you know, that sticks up about three feet. And um, this thing had um, arrows on its abdomen, on its back. It was It was brown colored, but it had white arrows on the abdomen pointing toward the end of his tail and uh they were arrows like you would see at an intersection on the on the uh on the road perfectly white drawn arrows and there were four or five of them i just wondered if i caught something rare or if uh doug has ever seen anything like that (laughs) what what part of mississippi do you live in uh central mississippi this was in uh near bay springs Well, I mean, a species doesn't come to mind automatically. I mean, uh, their abdomens um, have amazing diversity of color patterns, uh, everything from red hearts and some of the meadow, meadow hawks, um, and it changes depending on you know your angle of view to them. Uh, the, the, the arrows is kind of intriguing. I, I could probably um, look that up, but, um, but uh, certainly observing these types of things is fairly easy if, if you've got a camera and then can zoom in on it. 
Yeah, we'll we'll have to check. Yeah. We'll have to talk about it next week if we find out. All right. Okay. Yeah. I might have to try and send you a picture. Yes, yes, yes. do. Yeah. Uh, if you could, uh, and if you do have a picture, if you could email it to animals at mpbonline.org, uh, uh, we'll see that Doug gets it, and, and maybe you all can figure out uh, what you got there and see if it is an unusual species. Gerald, thanks uh, for giving us a call this morning. Um, so, Doug, we talked about odonates. Are there other insects in that family that we might be familiar with here in Mississippi? Um, in the family. So, uh, I mean, they are they're a separate taxonomic category, damselflies and, 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 um, and uh, uh, dragonflies. Um, the other insect, I mean, we have a plethora of, of other groups of insects, um, and I'm, I'm mostly familiar with them from what dragonflies eat, you know, so the, the flies, the leafhoppers, the, the uh, robber flies, um, and that's actually in, interesting in terms of what, what preys upon dragonflies, because they're in the food web like everything else, and um, uh, the, the previous call, it brought up the issue about spiders. Spiders are an important predator on, um, on dragonflies. Uh, even fire ants, um, newly emerged dragonflies that, that are on the shoreline. Uh, our fire ants have now moved into the shorelines of ponds and water bodies, and they're a very important predator on newly emerged dragonflies, which uh, their stage, called the tenoral stage, is um, they can't fly very well at that stage. They have to have their wings filled out and, dr- and dry before they're stiffened enough to fly. And fire ants are a big predator. So there are very many interactions between um, this group and other groups of insects. Um, got a couple of minutes left here, and you mentioned uh, earlier in the show that you photographed these uh, creatures and yeah. gave us a couple of tips. What are some more things if someone's uh, interested in, in trying to capture these, uh, either with maybe their their smartphone or, or a, a camera? Mm, yeah, there's largely two approaches. Um, uh, macro photography is one where you can get amazing detail uh, at small features on, on these critters. Um but dragonflies uh, are fairly hard to approach close enough to do, uh, you know, very, very um, uh, accurate and high-resolution macro photography. But now the, the cameras I use, personally, I use uh, um, a telephoto lens, um, either 400 to 500 millimeters. And that allows me to stand back a little further and not disturb the dragonfly and actually get into position with sun angle and everything, it gives me a great uh, photo op. Um, but um, certainly there are, there are different techniques to doing that. Uh, you don't have to uh, invest a huge amount of money into being uh, able to, to do this. Some of the point-and-shoot cameras now have tremendous telephoto capabilities. Um, and I guarantee you, if you take it up, you're going to be addicted. Um, I, I'm living proof of that. Uh, one thing, I've got an iPhone, and one of the features I like, and I think that might be helpful for something like that, is that <clears throat> if you, it's a, a mode where if you actually, when you press the shutter, it saves images like X seconds before and after. And so w- when you're trying to catch something that's in motion a lot of times, if you don't, when the shutter gets you know clicked that you don't have it, you actually have a range of, of images in which to pick from. And I thought maybe that, you know, if you think that you've just missed the the insect you know flying away uh, with this feature you can I don't know how it works I guess I don't, maybe it in I don't know how it would anticipate you pressing it, <laughs> but maybe it's the you know the very minor pressure on the on the shutter button or whatever but I found that's to be a really effective way for trying to capture something in motion because again you've got a wide variety of images to pick from 
Yeah, and there there is a different technique for taking pictures of perched dragonflies, which is the easier part. To try to get pictures of a flying dragonfly, oh boy. Um, and that's where the photography is complemented by your observation time. You you actually learn to look at the patterns of, of where, how they're moving. They'll, they'll patrol territories and come back to the same spot repeatedly or hover in the same spot. And that's the easiest point at which you can take a picture of a, of a flying dragonfly. And it all it all goes back into a high shutter speed to stop their motion uh, and depth of field. Um, it's all a trade-off in, in, in getting capturing a, an excellent uh, image. All right. Uh, so one more reminder. If uh, we piqued your interest about dragonflies and damselflies, Doug will have a lecture at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. It's Tuesday, February 5th at noon. That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comfort is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. If you want to hear today's show or a previous show, one way to find it is to go to mpbonline.org slash Creature Comforts. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener this morning was Michelle McAdoo. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest, Dr. Doug Clark, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned. Up next at 10, it's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio.